Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. There's so many of these types of community businesses that it's just a commodity. Like you go there because you have to. And I think that's where there's a, a real opportunity for a lot of these organizations to try to invest in a, in a workforce. Maybe it's people with autism. Maybe it's a different barrier group. But building a brand and a story around caring about people and bringing in talent that's different. I mean, we're not the only ones that have been successful with that. There's this coffee shop in, that's now across a lot of these Southeast called Biddy and Bows. They were founded with a similar mission of employing uh, people with disabilities uh, in their in their for pretty much their entire workforce, they've been really successful. There's this company called John's Crazy Socks, which sells, they sell socks online. Like, can you think of a less, like a more commoditized thing than socks? I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Thomas, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Srini, it's so good to be here with you today. I'm so excited. Yeah, it is my pleasure to uh, have you here. I actually found out about you by way of our mutual literary agent, Lisa Demona. And as I was saying before we hit record here, when I read the first few lines of the pitch, I was like a car wash. <laughs> um, and then when I understood what you guys did, I thought, okay, oh, yeah, yeah, this is a no brainer. But before we get into your new book and all of that, um, from reading the book, I got the sense that your father has had a profound impact on your life. And yeah. I wanted to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from your father that has influenced uh, what you've ended up doing with your life. Yeah, uh, he absolutely has had just an incredible impact on me. Certainly my biggest mentor in life and, and has kind of shaped not only my professional career because we, we built Rising Tide Car Wash together, but you know also really a, a huge parts of, of how I just go about thinking about the world. And I think the, the quote and the thing that he, he has always drilled into me from a really young age was that there there is no magic there's just hard work and this you know perspective that you know things aren't really necessarily going to go right people are going to look at your success when you have success luckily he was a successful entrepreneur for most of my life but they're going to look at that and say oh well 
you know, he got lucky or, you know, these things happened and, and that's why he's successful, right place, right time. People don't see the tremendous amount of work, the constant daily small failures that we experience as entrepreneurs and, and really in any pursuit that's really challenging or, or you know, something you really want to do. And that he would always say that to me in sports and, and then in, in my studies and now in this business, there's no magic. There's just hard work. Just keep going, keep pushing, keep practicing, keep trying. And, and that's something I've really taken with me through every aspect of my life. Well, and when you were growing up, uh, what were you thinking in terms of potential career paths? Because I don't think starting a car wash is on the list of one of those things <laughs> that your high school guidance counselor suggests, much like many of the people that I have here. And for people listening, <laughs> there's a reason we have Thomas here. We're going to get to that, but there's something very special about this car wash. But I'm just wondering, like, you know, the career path that just doesn't seem like where you'd end up nah, based yeah. on your educational background and everything else, you know, I know definitely, about you. Definitely not. Um, I, you know, when I was... So my dad, like I said, he's been an entrepreneur my, my whole life. And that was kind of always the path I wanted to go in in some way or another. Uh, we, you know, um, you know, I kind of looked at him and wanted to see like, okay, how can I use business to reach my goals? And that's how he really always approached business was whatever he was doing. He had a, a document management company. He had uh, an equestrian center uh, for, for a time. Uh, like just kind of different things. And it was always because there was a pursuit of some goal. And, you know, I luckily w- grew up in, in a household that was awesome. And I, I got really got the, I was born on third base in so many ways. So I had this, you know, perspective from a pretty young age that I wanted to try to use that to do good in the world. And entrepreneurship, you know, when I got to college and got exposed to this idea of social entrepreneurship, that you can have impact, you know, through using business, I was like totally hooked on. So when I was going to my undergrad degree, which was a a business degree, but it wasn't really necessarily focused on entrepreneurship, I really was like, okay, let's figure out how do I, you know, I was really interested in sustainable business, like corporate social responsibility. I got internships and stuff like that in college. I'm I'm a bit of like a, a research nerd. So that was kind of where I where I started was like in research departments in, in a couple different consultancies when I was in college. And I thought it was interesting work, but nobody was you know, candidly, no one was really fulfilled in those roles. They kind of got into these like corporate social responsibility roles as ways to try to influence big business to, to be more ethical and, and have more impact. But that's really difficult to, to influence those types of organizations, especially from the outside. So I saw these folks and I was like, damn, like, mm, this doesn't really seem like it's for me. Like, you know, they're, they're making good money and it's like a prestigious job, but it's not really something that's having the type of impact that, that I think they set out for. And certainly that I'm, I want to have. So then I got to start to meet some people who were social entrepreneurs and, and a lot of them candidly were kind of struggling financially. Uh, but they were on fire with their mission and they really felt like they were having impact. They really felt like they could change the world. So I graduated college and was kind of like, okay, like I, I want to do something in that, that realm. And, and then, and I guess I'll, I'll just kind of start talking a little bit more about, about business now, but the, you know, we have a need in our family and that my brother had autism and he was graduating high school when I was finishing college. And it became really clear really quickly that he was going to need 
support in order to lead the full adult life that we knew he was capable of, even though he was, you know, certainly smart enough, super hard worker, really kind and caring young man. You know, he wasn't going to interview well. There weren't a lot of opportunities out there for him. The programs that he were in, he was in simply it really wasn't, you know, they weren't getting anyone jobs and they certainly weren't getting him a job. So, you know, we knew we had to take action. And my dad at this point was like, well, let's start a business to employ Andrew and, and like figure it out from there. And that could be a social enterprise. And worst case scenario, Tom, you got a sweet story to tell and you can go to get in your MBA and go down a different route. Best case scenario, we've got, you know, a really great business and, and we're employing Andrew and hopefully lots of other people with autism like him. Tell me what it's like to grow up with a sibling who has autism, you know, because I think that for so many of us, uh, we only experience the uh, realities of autism through what we see on TV and what we see on, on media. And I remember um, when I had uh, Tara McMullen here, she <laughs> was diagnosed with autism way later in life. And I was like, Tara, I've met you, you know, two or three times in person. I was like, in a million years, I would have never guessed that you have autism. And of course, you know, she said it's a spectrum, but Tell me what it's like to grow up with a sibling like this. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And, and like you said, autism is, is such a large spectrum. Everybody has a different experience with it. But my brother kind of sits somewhere in the middle of the autism spectrum. He's got a mild intellectual disability uh, along with his autism. And it was just, it was really different than, uh, I think, a normal brotherly relationship when we're, we're so close in age where we're like 20 months apart. And, you know, he... You know, we didn't have the closeness, I think, that most brothers at that point would have. We didn't, um, you know, we didn't talk about girls. We didn't play sports together. We didn't do a lot of the things that my other friends that had siblings that were so close. Uh, but, you know, we, we really, we bonded over movies. Andrew's a big movie guy. He loves animated movies. I also love animated movies. So, like, we'd watch, you know, Toy Story together. We'd watch... Um, Land Before Time, like all these movies that he was just like, he's kind of obsessed with, to be honest. And, but I also really liked them. So we'd watch them together and, and have fun like that. Uh, but I really, I, you know, at some degree, I, I took on like a protector perspective with Andrew. A lot of siblings will talk about being like a parent sibling. And, and that was kind of, kind of similar. We, when we went to school together, we, for a short time, we were in the same school. And I was, you know, his protector. You weren't going to mess with Andrew because then you're going to mess with me. And, Probably that wasn't like the greatest thing for either of us, <laughs> um, but it certainly, um, you know, that was that was really our relationship. It was more of like I was there to look out for him. We bonded over certain things, but it wasn't like a typical sibling relationship. Yeah. What are the challenges that somebody like your brother faces uh, both in early childhood and in adolescence? Because I mean, being a teenager is already a shit show. Yeah. Yeah. Um so I think normally what you really experience a lot is a, is like a tremendous amount of bullying. Uh, Andrew was so blessed in that he had this group of friends that when he was really young, like they, they like really loved him. He would like one of his things when he gets stressed out is he'll, he'll recite lines to movies and stuff. And you know, that was something that kids really liked when he was like in kindergarten, first grade early on. And there was like three or four other young men in his, in his class that really like just, they loved him and they continued to love him all the way through high school. And, and luckily these young men ended up being some of like the most popular kids in their class. So 
I think that shielded Andrew from a lot of the bullying that many kids with autism face. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think he, you know, he, he always really, he struggled to find what, you know, where he fit. He didn't, you know, at some point intellectually kind of wasn't able to keep up with the class curriculum. He, um, wasn't able to, uh, like he was different socially, obviously. So he, you know, I think he, he had strugg- struggles finding his place. And, and, and that tends to be the case for a lot of kids with autism that, you know, they have different interests, they different ways of communicating, different ways of being. And until they find other people that are like them, they often just feel like an outcast. And so Andrew would regularly just kind of like uh, retreat into his bedroom and play his video games and do his thing. You know, he wasn't too interested in interacting with other people. And I think I attribute a lot of that to just not feeling like the people around him, I think necessarily were on the same wavelength. Mm. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. 
With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. How does it change the dynamics of a family? And, you know, particularly like as a parent, when your parents found out, one, how old was he? And, and you know, because I'd imagine yeah. initially that's so devastating for so many parents to find this out. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, it's the type of thing I think that really just totally alters the course of, of every family, right? So. Uh, I think for our family, we, we found out Andrew had autism when he was three. So very early on. And at the time, that was really early. Uh, at the time, I, I think the diagnosis rate was somewhere around one in 10,000. Today, it's one in 44. So you, you see diagnosis rates way higher today than you used to. So Andrew was quite lucky to get diagnosed at such a young age and be able to start getting the support he needed to um, kind of work through some of his behavioral issues. And you know, I think my parents, they put all of their effort into Andrew and, and that, um, you know, there was a lot of, he had just a lot of needs when he was young and it, it did a couple things. I think to our family was one, my, my parents always struggled with, well, what is he going to do when he's an adult? My dad has this, you know, as an entrepreneur and as someone, you know, his disposition is just really looking into the future. And so he would always look at Andrew from the time he was, you know, a young kid, he would, and I was like probably like 12 years old when he would start saying this to me. He's like, I don't see Andrew like this cute little eight, nine, 10 year old. I see him as a 45, 50 year old man. And like, what is he going to do at that point? So that was something that I think, you know, they really worried about Andrew's future. I think every parent probably worries about their children's future. It's just more pronounced when you have a kid with autism. And it also changed my relationship with my parents because for me, I somehow from a young age internalized this idea that like I didn't want to cause any trouble, any additional trouble for my parents. I wanted to be like this nice kid, this easy kid, like I wasn't going to get in trouble. I wasn't going to, you know, throw a fit or get upset, really try my best just to be kind of quote unquote, no trouble Thomas. And that was, you know, I think it took me a long time just to even recognize that and, and to like learn, you know, it's okay to struggle sometimes too. And yeah. okay to admit that. And, uh, that, that was challenging for me. Uh, and then on the flip side of that, you know, my, my parents, I think recognized that they would give Andrew a ton more attention than me because they had to. So they would often then maybe overcompensate a little bit and provide me with like, things that I didn't necessarily even want, like a nice car in, in high school or something like that. That wasn't something that I really valued, but it was something that there was their way of trying to to help, you know, support me and lift me up. Uh, they also did a lot of other things that were really awesome, like giving me coaching and, and um, being able to like really invest in my interests, which at the time in high school were like baseball and football. So like, getting me coaches to get me better at those things that helped me learn over time that like get way better at things, even though I would generally stink at them early on. Yeah. So what are the the support systems like 
for people like your brother, particularly when we're talking about education? Hmm. I think it varies a lot state to state. Uh, in New York, where we were growing up, um, and at the time that Andrew was growing up, there there wasn't a lot of support. I mean, the school district provided some some really great teachers. Those stay through the age of 22 in New York. So I think uh, across the country, you would actually look at New York as one of the better suited states to to support their entire population of people with autism. But it still really wasn't enough for Andrew. He had to get a lot of outside support that um, my family was just kind of able to pay for. I think today a lot of it probably would be covered in insurance. I don't believe it was when we were kids. Uh, in Florida, where we currently reside, there's there's a lot less support. Uh, a lot more of it comes from outside the system. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I think going forward, we'll see a lot more, um, a lot more outside organizations getting involved because the school system is really not built to support most people, especially people that think differently. And I, I don't think, in my opinion, it does a great job really empowering and developing like the unique skill sets of, of people with autism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is going to seem like a somewhat funny question, but um, we had a, a woman named Shelly Brander here and, and she had a son with autism and she was telling mm. me about, uh, you know, the thing that he was obsessed with was maps. And mm. she said, he's like a human GPS system. Mm. Basically, I was like, wait, so when you guys have Google Maps or Siri, she's like, no, he gets pissed. He was like, if we don't use him. So I, I'm just curious, are the things that, you know, about your brother that just make you laugh like funny moments that, um, you know, are similar to that. Yeah, totally. I mean, so Andrew's special interests are, uh, dinosaurs was his like number one. And then he would, he also like, there were, <laughs> he had this, I don't remember what it was called, but it was this like, like Windows 94 game that would have, that had this like 3D version of the human brain. And it was like a fly through where it would like talk about all the different parts of the brain. And he memorized every single part, like the amygdala, the neocortex, the brainstem. And he would like just go through like all the different, you know, different parts of the brain. And he was like seven at this point. <laughs> and I just remember like watching him do this, like, what is he talking about right now? And you know, he would do that. And then he loved the Museum of Natural History. That was his spot. He memorized that entire place, like the entire floor plan where every exhibit is, what he wanted to see. The, you know, since I said dinosaurs were, were really his thing, like the tour guide scripts, he would memorize that. And so you'd go there with him and he, he just had this place on lock. Like he knew where to go. He'd deliberately navigate us around places that he didn't want to go. He'd be like, nope, let's take a left here. <laughs> and like, why is he doing that? It's like, oh, he just didn't want to go see the blue whale. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> so he could effectively be a tour guide for the natural mu music yeah. of natural history. Yeah, exactly. So I guess, you know, that raises a question. What is happening in someone's brain when they have autism? Like, I'm curious about the brain science behind this. Yeah, I mean, you know, candidly, I'm, I'm certainly not an, an really an expert in autism. I, I think really where I think our what we've learned is how to work with people with autism to make businesses better and make our organization better. 
but I think that like when you when you really you read like Steve Silberman's work uh, is really great. The book Neurotribes, and it's really the the brain is functioning just differently. Uh, different using a lot of times different uh, neural pathways to come to the same uh, solutions. Uh, really, like when we talk about neurodivergency in general, there's like fundamental ways that people with ADHD, people with dyslexia, people with autism, they all kind of think in a fundamentally different way. A lot of times that comes with really unique and interesting advantages. I, I was reading uh, one of Malcolm Gladwell's books and he talks about uh, how there's like this really disproportionate amount of people that have dyslexia that are super mm-hmm. successful entrepreneurs. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, like he said in the book, you wouldn't necessarily wish that on anyone, but creates this constraint in life that forced them to really just become tremendous problem solvers in a lot of cases, really good listeners. Mm-hmm. And I think you see the same thing with a lot of people with autism. It's the, many of them become successful because they've learned to be different and, and embrace that and kind of play to their strengths. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's a um, section, I think it's in David and Goliath, if I remember correctly, yeah, yeah, on desirable right. difficulties. And mm. he was talking about David Voice, the trial lawyer, and you're thinking, Wait a minute. This is the one guy you hope to God you never receive a yeah. cease and desist letter from <laughs> um, because he apparently obliterates people in court. But you think to yourself, wait a minute, how the hell did this guy get through law school when he can't read? You know, exactly. and yet he's one of the most successful attorneys in the world. Like, I mean, I think every tech company in Silicon Valley uses him. It's wild. I mean, and there's, you know, Elon Musk is another example of someone who now identifies as having autism. And, and there's like a lot of yeah. these examples of these incredibly successful people who are successful really because they do think differently. Yeah, I mean, I I realized context mattered so much. Like for me, ADHD was a huge disadvantage in the corporate world. But mm. as a writer, as a creator, I can do things at a speed that uh, you know uh, I, I couldn't do in the corporate world simply because I can focus. I could. That's the funny thing about ADHD. It's not you know an inability to focus. It's an inability to focus on things you don't give a shit about. Yeah. It shows you like, okay, well, these are the things that I, I want to really focus on and yeah. the rest of it, I need to figure out a way to, to work around that. Yeah. I mean, Dad Howell in his most recent book, ADHD 2.0 said, boredom is basically kryptonite for people with ADHD. That makes total sense. Well, talk to me about, uh, you know, what prompted you to write this book and what the impetus was. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, we, we started this business, Rising Tide Car Wash, as a means to employ Andrew. And we, we set the goal pretty much from day one that we wanted to employ people with autism for 80% of our staff. And that created a, a really interesting constraint, I think, on the business from a design perspective, because we, we really had to think about every aspect of the business, how we would do it in a way where it would empower our, our staff with autism. And you know, through the years, as we kind of, we started in 2012 and, you know, we, we bought kind of this one crappy car wash in Parkland, Florida that was washing like 35,000 cars a year. And today we have, have three locations, about 90 employees with autism and we're washing about a half a million vehicles a year. And in kind of the process in building this organization and making it successful, we had to really reinvent a lot of the organizational processes that typically exist in in businesses. And at some point we realized that the problems we were solving, they weren't autism problems. They were really general business problems that our employees with autism were just allowing us to see a lot 
easier than your normal staff would. Like obviously traditional hiring processes aren't going to work for people with autism. Those are primarily these like social tests and, and neurotypical social skills, which, you know, inadvertently weed out a lot of people with autism. So we had to mm-hmm. build hiring processes that were really concrete and clear and focused on results and trying to drive down into, well, what do you really need to be successful in this role and how do we identify that? As well as like building clear processes and clarity into every aspect of the organization because our employees with autism need that. Typical employees need it too, but they may just kind of soldier through the ambiguity and just not do their best work and at some point probably just like stop caring about the work, but you know, pretend like it's still going great where our employees with autism are pretty much just going to tell us like, this doesn't make sense or like I'm confused or they're going to show you really clearly that they're confused and you have to try to drive that clarity deliberately and immediately into the organization. So doing things like that, as well as we had to reframe the way that we lead our team. So when people would struggle, we'd find that we needed to really immediately ask ourselves, is this person failing the business or is the business failing them? And and going through a design process based on generally seeing like, no, the business is failing them. And how do we design around the team members that struggle the most? And that would lead to a lot of interesting insights. So we, you know, we were able to solve some some pretty cool business problems by working with people with autism. And we wanted to really share that with specifically other small, medium-sized business leaders because so often these are the organizations that struggle so much with finding really great talent and differentiating themselves in these mm-hmm. crowded marketplaces. And we felt that this was a really interesting strategy to, to pursue to, to help do that and also would hopefully create a lot more job opportunities for people with autism. So, you know, that was kind of the goal of writing the book. The book is called The Power of Potential, How a Non-Traditional Workforce Can Lead You to Run Your Business Better. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. One of the things that you say in the opening of the book is that Rising Tide succeeded because our employees with autism, autism uncovered every one of those hidden problems with startling, sometimes unsettling speed. <laughs> Talk to me about that. Yeah. Uh, how did they do that? You know, and you know, what were the problems? That, uh, yeah. These I mean, people, and why I mean, is that such an advantage? There were like, I mean, there are so many of those moments through the, you know, the evolution of this business. You know, I think the one that, that comes to mind the most, uh, isn't it's a story that's shared in the book is every Monday night, we have a bunch of staff in to do our, our weekly maintenance and some of our deeper cleaning activities. So like we'll grease all of the bearings, we'll like change oil filters, we'll do, you know, we'll, we'll do a thorough cleaning inside the car wash conveyor, we'll scrub the arches down. And so there's a bunch of tasks that have to get done. And early on when we were rolling this, you know, mon Monday maintenance out, there wasn't a lot of structure to it. It was kind of like, okay, you have, we have these things we would just tell people what to do over the course of the night and, and get it done. We had this one team member who, um, his name's Robert and he just like got real frustrated one night. And, you know, at first it looked like he was just like disengaged and not working. So the manager kind of was like, Hey, Rob, get, get to work. And then, you know, he got frustrated even more and he started to lash out. And it would have been easy just to say, you know, screw you, Rob, you're being difficult. In fact, that manager did give Rob a write up that night. Um, but when we, learned more about the situation when I got to talk to Rob and, and understand it's like he just didn't know what he was supposed to do. We had a lot of difficulty figuring out, you know, what was where he needed to prioritize. He was given a list of a couple different things to do. And he just kind of froze. And that gave us the insights like, okay, we need to really make this much clearer. We need to make training for each of these tasks. We need to put it up on a board so everybody knows what to do and what order they need to do it in. And that made it easier for everybody else to do these tasks. This car wash was better maintained and cleaner because of it. And like, those are the types of things that like, you that start generally with an employee, like being either visibly upset or just clearly struggling that 
would launch us into these different design, you know, challenges. And, you know, I think those exist in like that, that particular thing, that ambiguity of what to do over the course of a day that exists in every organization. And it's an advantage because we get to solve those things where most organizations, you know, the leaders may not be really aware of where their teams are struggling because when you ask them, they're just going to tell you, yeah, yeah, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. We're doing great because they don't want to look incompetent or maybe it's just hard or not, or maybe a little frowned upon to say, I'm struggling with X, Y, and Z. Even if you're trying to create a, a culture that is really open, still, I think people struggle with that, where where our team either A, couldn't hide it because it was a, a really challenging for them, or B, didn't feel like they needed to hide it because a lot of people with autism are kind of just going to be blunt and tell you what they mean, even if like socially that isn't the right way to be or you know, quote unquote right way to be in a certain situation. So it really, our, the neurodiversity in our business and then getting to work with our team members through those issues, it really helped us fix a ton of things in our organization. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think really struck me uh, that you said in the book uh, about the typical talent process, which is, you know, what most of us have gone through, you say, the typical talent process I just described is deeply flawed. That's not just my opinion. That's data. 46% of all hires fail within 18 months, according to the 2005 mm -hmm. Leadership IQ survey. And as the guy who has been fired from every job I've ever had, I completely agree with that. But um, explain to me how we change that. Yeah. Yeah. So most hiring processes are just, they're riddled with bias in, in every, you know, from top to bottom. And the way that we try to, eliminate or at least reduce that bias. I'm not sure it's totally possible to completely eliminate it, but to try to get to the truth of what in a specific role, that specific context do we need? I think we try to tend to try to take a, like a one size fits all approach to, well, this is what talent looks like. I have this idea of what talent looks like in my head. And that applies to anyone that I'm, I'm hiring. Generally, that's someone who looks like me, talks like me, acts like me, maybe had a similar educational background as me. And by throwing that away and being like, okay, Johnny is really good at this role. I see. What does Johnny do that's really good? Okay. I need someone who has a growth mindset. I need someone who is able to be assertive in this role, is able to speak their mind. I need someone who, you know, in the case of our, our, our aftercare associate roles has the physical ability to do this task, this manual tough task over and over again. And, you know, by trying to identify those things and then designing either work tests or a, like a sample day or uh, an audition for these roles, we can much clear, more clearly see if somebody is going to be good at the role. So the most easy example for me to give is how we interview for our, our um, associate roles, which is the roles where the team members are actually just cleaning the vehicles, right? So we need someone who can follow directions, who's willing to follow the process, who's physically able to do the job, and who's sensory able to be in this loud, hot environment. So we bring a team member or a, a candidate out into the environment. We show them kind of the core things. They then go and do them back for us. 
and by doing this and going through this scored assessment, we're able to generate uh, a score based on how many times it takes them to do each, each task. And we're able to get a pretty good probability of, is this person going to be able to do this job? And we then, you know, for other roles that are maybe, let's say, a management role, we're looking for different things. We're looking for some character traits. We're looking for someone's, uh, you know, ability to persevere through difficult situations. We're going to ask them the same questions. We're going to ask them both questions about their past experience, like a time where they persevered through a challenging situation or a goal that they were able to achieve that took a lot of work. Or we're going to ask them more of like a scenario-based question. Like if somebody was struggling in this situation, how would you handle it? How would you help that person work through that challenge? And by asking those same questions, having a scorecard associated with it, having multiple people doing those interviews, we're able to just quantify a lot of the things that we're looking for for many of our roles. And that, I think, is the beginning of the process to unbiasing the interview procedure. And the great thing about using something that's like a work trial or job audition or the structured interview that I kind of just talked about a second ago is that it can be a really good platform to improve on. So as we run into different issues in the work environment, we can add different questions, add different tests to try to make sure we don't hit that same issue again. So a few years ago, we realized that in some of the management trainees that we were bringing on, personal responsibility was a really key part of the role. Somebody who's willing to take personal responsibility for their actions, and that's the way they approach problems. And okay, so we need to add a series of questions to try to get at that idea. And we had to iterate those questions, and the first questions weren't very good. And then we kept going through them. But eventually, we were able to to create a set of questions that allowed us to get an idea of, okay, what is your, um, you know, degree of personal responsibility, you know, in, in your general mindset. And we do those things over and over again. And I think that we've got just been able to really improve the way that we hire based on all these procedures to the point where for our, our associate roles, we're hiring our employees with autism to actually work on the cars. We've only had three team members fail due to job performance over the past 10 years that we've been doing it. And no one fail due to that, that functional job performance in the last four years. So it's much, it's a much more accurate system. Yeah. Well, one thing that you say about this is that average workplaces are dominated by good enough management, disengaged employees and general mediocrity tend to get blamed on other things most frequently the employees themselves. Hmm. But then, you know, I think what you go on to say, uh, which really runs counter to this idea of firing fast is that firing fast may be the least effective way to prevent trouble down the road. It's holding you back from solving problems that stand in the way of your growth as a business. It's also teaching employees to hide their mistakes for fear of reprisal. And at most organizations, miss that people in the bottom tail represent the biggest opportunity to improve performance in your company. You know, it, that's, is so counter to so much of what we learn, mm-hmm. particularly in Silicon Valley. And, you know, I, it, the funny thing is I, I've heard the exact opposite. And in some cases, I feel like uh, it does make sense to fire fast. But talk to me about that. I mean, I, there, are place, there are a lot of people that I kept on my team for too long. Yeah, so for sure. And certainly there's a, a shadow side to this strategy, too. Certainly not saying it's a perfect strategy, but 
what I'm trying to get at with that, and this is actually probably the, the section of the book that I loved the most in writing it, was that when someone's struggling, it's really easy. It's, in fact, it's much easier to just blame it on that person. It doesn't make you evaluate why they're struggling. It's like, nope, Johnny just sucks. And it's Johnny's problem. I'll replace Johnny with a new person. And that's going to solve my issue. I won't have the problem anymore. But most of the time, at, at least in our environment, most of the time, there's some contextual reason why they're struggling. And Johnny can tell you if you sit there and listen to him and watch him do his work, what is making his job hard? Why is he having these challenges? And by doing that, you often uncover insights that will make your workplace better for everyone else. Because if you can help Johnny be successful, everybody else, there'll be an easier job for it. It'll, and then it will translate to more reliable systems, easier to train systems. You're able to bring on people with less work experience often when you do these types of things. So it has this ripple effect in the organization, not to mention from a cultural perspective, when we take an approach of firing fast, it makes it very scary for an employee to voice a struggle, right? Because, oh, they're, well, they're not doing good. And I know here, like, we just fire people when they're struggling. So I'm going to keep quiet and I'm not going to let anybody know. And hopefully they won't realize I'm, I'm, I suck at this or I'm having real difficulty with this. And we just sweep our problems under the rug. And it really runs counter to another thing that is a big deal in, you know, in Silicon Valley and, and really throughout the business world right now, which is psychological safety, the feeling that we can feel safe enough to speak up and ask questions, have dissenting viewpoints, uh, or, you know, when we're having failure that it's framed as learning. And, you know, I think that this approach to immediately, I'm immediately going to be disciplined and not just blame it on this person. My first step is going to be to understand from their perspective why they are failing is a really good practice. Certainly, we've had plenty of employees that just, they don't really care and, and they're, or they're not really, this is not the right role for them. And you, you still have to fire. Certainly not saying that we, we can't, we should, we don't fire anyone or that you shouldn't fire anyone. But the first step, the first step should be this honest evaluation of the situation. Having a predominantly autistic workforce, what competitive advantages has that given you uh, in your business? And then also, what have been the the challenges yeah. that you guys face? So I think the advantages that we, we immediately saw were we had a, a staff that really wanted to be at work, which that's very different than most car washes and really most retail organizations, right? So yeah. You have people that want to be there. And they also, you know, and, and, you know, there's an interesting debate in the autism community right now, whether this is based on the way that we work with children with autism, or if this is something that is really like neurologically, this is something that they, people, a lot of people with autism tend to, but is this idea of structure and routine and schedule. So, Many people with autism have a desire for, for structure, routine, and schedule. And in a process-driven business like a car wash, you want people to follow your process, routine, and structure, where many neurotypical employees, you know, want to kind of do it their own way. 
It's like, yeah, 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 whatever. Like, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm doing it my way. And that leads to inconsistent service. And, and you know, every organization, every service-driven organization knows that. But it's really hard to get people to conform to their processes where yeah. our employees, this is how, this is like the, the key support how they're successful in the workplace is having these clear and consistent processes so you know how to, what to do in a certain situation. And then they really follow them. So those were the immediate things. A little later, once we started to really talk about our mission to the public, was the thing that really differentiates us as a business. So, I mean, there are plenty, every other car wash, I would venture to say every other car wash in the world is competing on quality, speed, price, and, you know, memberships are a big deal, different, you know, like the LED lights that you see in the car wash, all these like fun little things that in a lot of cases they are important and they do add to the experience. But it's all the same thing. It's very difficult to, you know, stand out and have people really choose you or have any real loyalty to you as a car wash where we tell a story that really resonates with people and they come to our car wash because of that. They drive further because of that. They pass other car washes on their way because they care about what we're doing. They talk to their friends and family in a positive way about their car wash. That's not normal. Normally, if you're talking to your friends or family about a car wash, it's because they screwed up so bad that you just have to vent. Right? <laughs> well, it's, it's I'm laughing because there's a car wash right by my parents' house that I go to, and my dad always hates it when I go there because he's like, "We, you know, we we lease Mercedes." It's like, go to the Mercedes dealer. I was like, "Dad, I'm not going to spend five hours at the Mercedes yeah. dealer to get a better car wash." He's like, "Yeah, but that car wash sucks." Exactly, <laughs> the one that you know we go to. Right. Uh, That's the way yeah, we talk about it. You know, well, it's, it's funny because, yeah, in, in a, a typical sense, a, a car wash would typically be considered a commodity business. I don't mm. think most of us, you know, speak the way that you know, your customers probably do about their car wash. Like to me, all I can tell you is when the car is dirty, I take it there. Beyond that, I don't have any sort of emotional attachment to the place or any Correct. semblance of loyalty to Correct. it at all. And, and there, there are so many businesses like that, right? That, that just, you know, your local dry cleaner, you know, there's so many of these types of community businesses that, it's just a commodity. Like you go there because you have to. And I think that's where there's a, a real opportunity for a lot of these organizations to try to invest in a, in a workforce. Maybe it's people with autism. Maybe it's a different barrier group. But building a brand and a story around caring about people and bringing in talent that's different. I mean, we're not the only ones that have been successful with that. There's this coffee shop in, that's now across a lot of these Southeast called Biddy and Bose, they were founded with a similar mission of employing uh, people with disabilities uh, in their, in their, for pretty much their entire workforce. They've been really successful. There's this company called John's Crazy Socks, which sells, they sell socks online. Like, can you think of a less, like a, a more commoditized thing than socks? And yeah. John really liked socks. They built this cool story around it. They sell a lot of fun socks too, like a, a, a bunch of really cool different brands and you know he's they've been able to build this business because it has this unique story and i think that there there's a lot of opportunity for entrepreneurs to to differentiate themselves by by leveraging a story like that and really investing in the people that work for them well um you may be familiar familiar with her work but Catherine hogue started defy ventures which Basically, her entire mission is to use venture capital to invest in people who've been in prison. Mm. And turns out they're brilliant entrepreneurs. 
Yeah. I mean, a lot of it's misplaced entrepreneurial uh, spirit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I can tell you this from having uh, visited San Quentin. We had a guy named Chris Redlitz here as a guest on the show. He's a venture capitalist who started a tech incubator inside of San Quentin prison. And I remember going there and just watching how these guys worked, the apps they were building, mm-hmm. you know, and all the things. And it, you are kind of blown away by the fact that, you know, you define this person by this one moment in their life where they've done something so horrible. I remember shaking hands with the guy, what are you in here for? He's like, oh, murder. I was like, you don't look like a murderer. You know, and I was the nicest guy. Like I sat with him, you know, uh, talking to him. He read my book and absolutely loved it. And was like, so what are you in here for? He's like, ah, I shot a guy. I used to be a stockbroker. I was like, what? (laughs) Damn. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was mind blowing to me how brilliant these guys were. And, you know, it just made me think, it's like, yeah, I can see why people would want to hire them. Yeah. So much is, is contextual, right? We end up in these situations that we want to judge a person. Obviously, murder is an extreme case, but, you know, a little bit less extreme is, you know, we have a lot of daily failures or, or life failures that we ourselves tend to blame on our own innate skills when it's often the context around you that's that's driving so much of your behavior. We don't, mm-hmm. like, step back enough to think about that. And that's something that we try to do in our business, which which is, like, we talked about, like, not firing fast. That's just, It's the same type of concept, is that so much of behavior and so much of success and failure is driven by the context of the situation that we really need to try to get curious and get interested and be humble with the idea that, well, we don't really know what's going on until we really look at it. And then even still, we may not get a full picture, but at least we'll get a better one. And that process, I think, is something that we really need to do if we're going to build successful organizations, really support people effectively and scale our organizations. Yeah. I, I remember Trevor Noah on his uh, final Daily Show appearance had this monologue. And one of the things that he said that stayed with me so much so that I clipped the note was that context is everything. Yeah, it really and is. We say context is king in our business all the time. Yeah, I, I, I think that's so true for so many different things. And something like I beat like a dead horse here on the show this year, but um, it just made me realize it's like, yeah, in every context, I used to think about my parents' advice, you know, to do something stable and secure as, you know, rigid and closed-minded. And then I realized that advice was based on the context of having grown up in a country where their outcomes were binary. It was either poverty or security. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. It made sense. They were trying to protect you, but it didn't serve you because it's a different context. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, Well, this has been really, really cool. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody something unmistakable? I think our, I'm sorry, can you say that one more time? Yeah. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it's the willingness to really be authentic to themselves and be able to frame things in a in a way where it's it's helpful. I think perspective can often be the most important thing in life and in entrepreneurship. I, I loved in your book how, how you, you talked about Laird Hamilton and, and fear, right? Where fear can be a wonderful motivator or it can stop people dead in their tracks. And I really think that like, you can look at it that way. You can look at it as, well, I'm, a, I'm afraid so I'm not going to do something. Or you can look at it as, nah, let's go. Like this is, this is going to help me get through this and be sharp. And 
I think that framing of, of things and being able to say, okay, well, this is challenging, but what's the shadow side of that? What's the opposite? And how do I, you know, think about things? I mean, that's essentially what we did in our business. We, we had a constraint, right? 80% of our staff was going to have autism. Could look at this as well. That's never going to work. And why am I even going to try? Or you can walk down the path and you can eventually see that, no, nope, this breeds innovation. This is a really dynamic way to differentiate our organization, but it all comes down to that finding the right perspective. Amazing. Um, well, thank you again for taking the time to join us and share your story, uh, your wisdom, and your insights with all the shows. Where can people find out more about uh, you, uh, the book, your work, and everything that you're up to? Yeah. So you can go to our website, risingtidecarwash.com. You can find our book there as well. And you can find the, the book, The Power of Potential, How a Non-Traditional Workforce Can Lead You to Run Your Business Better at anywhere that you buy books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. 
This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.